Hi, this is the Social Jello with Angelo show. My name's Angelo. I'm a social scientist, surfer, martial artist, and a whole lot of other things. Coming to you live from Kasai City, Japan, the Social Jello with Angelo show. Hey, what's up, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Social Jello with Angelo. Normally, before I get things started, I don't know how long you've been listening to the show. But normally, I usually go and uh, I go into a spiel with my sponsors and stuff. But today, I'm doing an editor's retraction. Yes, folks, I am human and I make mistakes. What do you know? On episode 39 of Social Jello with Angelo, if you haven't checked it out, check it out. It's a cool episode. I talked to Sifu John Hojlo. He's a Kaju Kembo instructor here in Japan. And we kind of go over sports fighting and self-defense and the differences between the two things and how it works in martial arts. Um, I actually made a mistake. I got kind of caught up in the conversation and uh, generalized a rule that I was talking about that's concerned with uh, amateur MMA fighting in Japan, specifically to the hybrid pancreation venue. And I generalized a rule that they have in that to the UFC. Um, one of John Hojlo's listeners very kindly pointed that out to me, very respectfully uh, pointed out that in the UFC, they do allow ground and pounds from a standing position. And uh, let me just clarify that again. In the UFC, they do allow ground and pounds from a standing position. Now, for some of you listening to this and being like, what the fuck is he talking about? All right, now I got to clarify it. So what's a ground and pound? A ground and pound is when in a UFC mixed martial arts match or a cage fight, an opponent is knocked to the ground. And when they land on the ground, the person who knocked them to the ground stands over them and starts punching them. Um, that's a ground and pound. So I was talking about the rules at the time uh, here in amateur MMA in Japan at the venue I just mentioned, the Pincreation Hybrid Wrestling Pincreation venue. Uh, they, they have a rule for the amateur division that says that you are not allowed to stand over the opponent and ground and pound them. Uh, and if you do ground and pound, they have this really complicated system about what's considered a downed opponent. Um, if a person has uh, three limbs, in other words, two knees and an arm on the ground, you can no longer hit them on the ground. And I, I guess during the conversation, I got caught up in the moment and I might have said that this happens in the UFC. I, I usually, I think even during the actual thing, I say things like, I think I might, I might have. I try not to make absolute statements so that I can leave wiggle room for being wrong and tell you right now, I was wrong. So there it is. That's my retraction. Um, all right, let's get to business. Uh, today's Social Jello with Angelo episode is brought to you by Last.fm. Last.fm is hooking me up and they're playing my stuff online for free. So if you want to check out Last.fm, also TuneIn Radio and also Blueberry. These are three different apps that you can listen to if you don't want to download an entire episode and you just want to listen to f uh, from an app, which is easier to access my stuff. I personally really love TuneIn Radio because uh, it's kind of like Pandora, except you can, uh, it's free, it's free and, and uh, it can be listened to internationally. I, I live out here in Japan and I do not have access to Pandora. If I'm wrong, Pandora, if you're listening to this, 
Anyone, any reps from Pandora listening to this saying, that's wrong. We do broadcast internationally. Please send me a link. I'd be more than happy to check out your app and let you know if it works out here for now. That's what I have to say. All right. With that all being said and done, let's get started with the show. All right, so for today's episode, I'm going to be going over some questions. Uh, people ask me questions or stuff just comes up in life. And uh, I decided to just kind of go over some different things, uh, some inaccuracies in psychology. Uh, just some stuff that when I'm listening to podcasts, people talk online, um, conversations I've had, mistakes I've made in life. I've made a lot of mistakes in life. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, we, I just kind of go over, just kind of brainstorming some of that stuff and decided to make a podcast about it. And, uh, I hope you enjoy this, this episode. So also if you're ever interested in submitting a question or if you have a question about psychology, social psychology or martial arts, even I'm pretty open to those two, you can hit it up and, uh, I'll be more than happy to do that. I also have a Quora, Quora, am I saying that right? Quora. It's spelled Q-U-O-R-A, I think. Quora. I have one of those accounts where you can ask me questions, or you, yeah, you can actually ask me questions directly, and I'll answer them that way, too. I'm really bad at that, though. I have a lot of requests for questions, because, like, it's not just my listeners that have it. It's, like, a lot of people who see my credentials, and they're, like, mostly questions about martial arts. You know, you'd think with a master's in psychology, I'd have a few more questions about psychology, but or living in Japan, I'd have more questions in Japan. It's interesting because one of the questions that they had was about half people who are half Japanese and half uh, another ethnicity, and uh, and they or nationality, I should say, and we they I answered a question about that, and that's got like the most likes and hits. But no one really asks me questions about that. It was just something I was browsing through and I decided to answer a question that someone put on the general blog page for Quora. And I just kind of went on a, a long spiel about life out here for, for people who are half Japanese and half another nationality and the, the, the dual identities that they try to fight. I mean, things in general are better than when compared to some other countries. But uh, they do have some, some issues with... Uh, with discrimination and being treated differently, uh, not that not not very heavy stuff. Like it's a lot lighter, and I go over that in the blog post. But either way, I, I wrote a blog post for that, and a lot of people like that. But I think um, what might have happened is when people see my credentials, they immediately see the amount of years I've been doing martial arts. So a lot of people ask me stuff about martial arts. So what happens is the more you answer one type of question, the more questions you get of that. So mostly all my stuff is about martial arts on there. Uh, but either way, like you can ask me anything, uh, about psychology or martial arts or outside of the realm of that. I, I'll try to answer them to my best of my cop capabilities. <laughs> um, but, uh, either way you can check that out. The first question I'm going to tackle, why are women attracted to alpha males? Um, how does birth control mess with that? And what's going on with women when they're pregnant? So, first of all, I should say, like, this thing came up because I was listening to the Joe Rogan podcast and I was listening to him talk to a guest about why they thought, uh, they, they felt that women are attracted to alpha males when they're pregnant, which is an interesting observation. Um, 
But when I, I immediately just remembered a study that I saw that actually said the opposite. Um, they actually found that women select men with less masculine voices and facial features and traits when pregnant. And when they're not pregnant is when they're attracted to more masculine alpha. Not just not pregnant. I should probably clarify this. There's a period uh, before their menstrual cycle that their pheromones start to change. And they're attracted to men with more masculine features. I don't want to be with those bro dudes. Yeah, bro. Alpha male, bro. They like alpha males. No, I'm not trying to say that. Um, uh, I'm just trying to more or less look at the science. And what, what the scientists were saying was that uh, during this time where they're the most fertile and more, more likely to get pregnant, they're attracted to men with masculine features, broad shoulders, facial hair um they have more of that masculine look um more muscular density larger guys now why why would they be attracted to that well it's a combination of that well this goes back to evolutionary psychology back in the day people had to fight each other with rocks and sticks and swords and shields and if you were to ensure that you're going to survive in a world where people are constantly killing each other uh, you needed to have a a partner that was going to be strong. Not to mention, being strong meant that your children would be strong and have a higher likelihood to survive in a very harsh world filled with saber-toothed tigers and mammoths and that kind of stuff. I don't know if mammoths are really that that vicious. And then I also have to check if saber-toothed tigers... Either way, that's just an example. They might have not been saber-toothed tigers or mammoths. I, I don't know how you know i haven't looked into research of how many mammoth killings there were but i will say that in a world where lions and tigers and bears oh my are coming after you and you have very little shelter uh definitely being uh stronger bigger uh broader shoulders bigger mask you know more uh, muscle density that kind of stuff um will help you survive in that kind of environment and having smaller features being skinnier being more fragile this is going to be harder for to survive so in that kind of circumstance, our bodies, our DNA is really wired uh, to, to kind of look for those traits. And that's what they found in the study was that when women were the most fertile, they were attracted to guys with more facial hair. Now, weird, kind of strange, when they were already pregnant. When they were already pregnant, women started selecting men with less masculine voices. And less facial features, less facial hair. They don't like guys with beards. Less people with beards, smaller muscles. Why? Why would they do this? Well, they found that um, men with less masculine traits uh, signified a male who's going to stick around. Because another thing that happens with the alpha male back in the day, going back to evolutionary psychology... Um, monogamy wasn't exactly a very common trait uh, before the institution, uh, before religious institutions came in and said, hey, you have to be monogamous. People were more polygamous. And from an evolutionary perspective, this just this kind of just helped human survival. You know, uh, humans weren't exactly on the top of the food chain. They were working their way up. And to ensure larger numbers, uh, it was pretty common for the alpha males to have multiple partners, and especially the alpha males, the, the leaders 
of the communities that they were in. Why do I refer to them as alpha males? Like there's some sort of alpha wolf or something. Well, because people ran in packs back then and they were a little more savage. We were all savages. And what would happen is the alpha male or the leader of the group in a, in a place with no, you know, state laws and more tribal societies, they were allowed to kind of pick the best women in the group and monogamy was kind of accepted um, to a degree and they had multiple partners. So the other problem was with the alpha males is that they would leave, they'd go hunt, they'd take months, they'd go away and the woman would be left and again since monogamy is not looked down upon in these societies, eh, the alpha males would take off, uh, the strong men would go hunt and the weaker men would sometimes stay behind with the women and help them gather and gathered a little more than food if you know what i'm saying and they started hooking up <laughs> with the women that were back in camp um and this also ensured for the woman to have an extra male helper you know someone who would satisfy their sexual needs and at the same time kind of help out around the hut if you will and these guys would normally be well, they'd still be semi-polygamous. They didn't have, of course, right? Since the alpha male had the top choice, he'd impregnate all these women. And the not-so-alpha male, feminine trait kind of guys, they'd be stuck at camp. Um, they wouldn't get first pick, but they did get to have seconds. <laughs> and um, either way, evolutionary speaking, what this ended up doing is uh, women started f figuring out from an evolutionary standpoint. Okay, I'm not talking about now. I'm just saying from an evolutionary standpoint, back then, women started figuring out that men with less alpha male features, broader soldiers, uh, broader shoulders, facial hair, these guys were actually going to stick around and help raise the children, as opposed to the alpha male, who was maybe going to go from camp to camp, impregnating women and never really coming back. He'd bring meat once in a while, but that's about it. He'd be back and then he'd go back off. Not to mention the alpha males had a higher mortality rate when they'd go out there. They had a higher chance of being killed in, in a war or whatever. So yeah, having a guy with feminine features kind of meant having a guy that's going to be around and help you out of home a little more. So that's this goes back. So this goes back to the conversation, right? Right now, women, uh, when they're on the pill on on uh, on birth control, uh, it really messes with their pheromones and. What'll happen is their uh, their natural cycle is interrupted, and it starts to act sometimes for some women. Um, it'll start to mimic the same kind of pheromone levels that they would have when they're pregnant. So this this is a, this is an interesting implication that you know because of science, um, where naturally evolutionary biology or evolutionary psychology evolutionary. Uh, perspective would say that women are normally attracted to alpha males. The reason that there's been an insurge or uh, kind of a, a skew of more women being attracted to men with less masculine features, um, the reason this is this trait, this is this uh, phenomenon or this social trend has been happening um, is could, I'm not saying it's just one factor. But they're suggesting that one of the factors could be contraceptives for women. And that this is kind of this is kind of switching the way things evolutionary psychology and uh, and the way that kind of works in uh, in real life. Like you know, real, it's all real life, but 
it's kind of making an effect. That's the kind of the effect that uh, that we've had on our own genes. You know, and that, going back and forth about how we evolve. A lot of people don't understand how adaptation and evolution works, and um, this is one of the ways it works, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, and this 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 is the way it's kind of playing out. You know, we started coming up with ways to use contraceptives to be able to help society. Like, I mean, of course, contraceptives are able to help women, you know, get through uh, in, a, in societies that no longer need hunter-gatherers. They no longer need, um, you know, these kind of societies. Now we're in larger societies that, you know, we're more based on information-based societies, trying to gather data, people who work in offices, that kind of thing. Um, you know, now education is much more important than having big muscles. Big muscles don't earn you as much money. Unless you're Conor McGregor. <laughs> or Mayweather. But aside from that, no, not everyone can be Conor McGregor or Mayweather. In fact, for the most part, you have a higher chance of being successful with a higher education. Research shows that again and again and again. Higher education means more money. And higher education costs money. And higher education takes time to get. So contraceptives definitely help women because being pregnant and going to college is really tough. Raising kids while in college is really rough. Can be done, but very difficult to do. It's easier if you don't. And that kind of wraps up my answer for that. Uh, no one asked me, I guess. It was just something that I heard too, you know, I heard the in the Joe Rogan podcast, they were just kind of throwing stuff out there, and I was yelling in my car, no, 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 that's not it. So I had, <laughs> so, I, so I felt the need to, to do this. Even though, hey, again, Joe Rogan podcast, I love that podcast. Um, you know, thanks to that little side conversation they had, it, it got me thinking about this subject. And this is something that I, I remember having to write a few different papers on in my master's course. Uh, in my human sexuality course and, and a few biology courses too this this topic came up so yeah that that answers that question as far as as far as women and attraction um related to that kind of going back to kind of looking at the evolutionary psychology and how people evolved and how societies change i was noticing on facebook the other day there was this uh this conversation that i saw um it, uh, they had an article that posted a, a picture of a, a man in Afghanistan kissing a child, and it said, um, "It said the man's name and how he just lost uh, one of his, one of his eight children, and it's so sad that he's lost one of his eight children." And the comments that I saw, well, the po it was posted on the article on the very top was, "Why the fuck would you have eight children?" In a situation where you knew they weren't going to survive. If I lived in Afghanistan or if I lived in that kind of situation, I wouldn't want to have kids at all because I wouldn't want to bring kids into this world that's so horrible. And uh, there's a lot of layers going on here. Um, but uh, I don't attack people. Um, I, I, I mean, from one side of a perspective, I completely understand why you would say that. I get it. Um, but you to kind of look at why you would have eight to ten kids in a dangerous situation it actually goes right back to what we were talking about with the tigers and the bears right um what happens when you when you 
live in a country with high child mortality rates. Um, first of all, saying I'm not going to have kids. I'm just not going to have kids. That sounds like an easy option. Just not going to have kids. Um, really what happens is these societies don't come from... We, 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 we say that from a position of societies where the average person has... And I say we. Uh, people in, in developed countries uh, tend to talk about things... Uh, because they, on average, most people in developed countries are having maybe, maybe I think it was like 2.5 kids. I've seen studies go between 1 and 2 to 2.5 kids, right? That's like the average, 1 to 2.5 kids for developed countries. And why is that? Well, because when you have a kid in a, in a developed country, it's very expensive. Not that they're not expensive as it is, but in a developed country, you know, we were just talking about how education is really important. Education costs a lot of money. So the more kids you have, the more money it costs. You actually don't get much return on your investment either um, because by the time they're all done and said and done, you're just giving most of your wealth to them as they're entering, starting getting their lives halfway through. So it costs more money to have kids in that kind of information database society. But when you come from a society where it's agriculture, agriculture is your main thing well you don't need much of an education to go work out in the field that's that can that's knowledge that's passed on through generation by word of mouth so you can easily having more kids in that situation actually makes you more money momentarily and that's really hard to explain to someone if that's what you're born with is an agriculture society right you come from a society where you had eight nine brothers and sisters so automatically your your view your your perception your view of the world is very different from someone who was brought up in a developed country who was most likely brought up around maybe maybe one or two other brothers and sisters depending on what generation they're from and when you when they come up in those kind of situations they're already used to the idea of a large family a large family is considered a happy family. And they see how successful the larger families are to the smaller families. And the reason the larger families are more successful is because one thing, especially in Afghanistan that people kind of look over, and, and the Middle East, is that the Middle East is actually a nomadic tribal society. It's the reason that it's been so hard to establish states um, in the 19th century. They were one of the last few places to really hold on to their tribes. If you look at some of the issues that are happening and were happening in the early 19th century with, uh, with the establishment of the state of Israel and Palestine, Palestine did not have a unified front. It was several tribes fighting the Ottoman Empire. And you look at the entire region and you'll see the same story. A lot of tribes. Um... You know, in America, we know how that played out really early in the 14th century, 15th century, early 15th century, when uh, colonization started happening, and there was a bunch of tribal societies. It was really easy to break them up and, and take them over by countries that already had established states. So how is this all related to the child mortality rate? How is this all related? Well, when before a state comes in, before a state has power, what has power are large groups. Going back to our original conversation about birth control, having lots of children uh, ha gives you a larger pack. So if everybody in your tribe has lots of children, if a lot of the quote-unquote alpha males have a lot of children, and in a world 
where having more people means more warriors, then the tribe with the larger numbers gets the lar the more gets more resources. And this kind of mentality is what happens in a lot of the developing countries that are still tribal societies. Um, they they do see a quick return on their investment if they have a lot of children because they have more children. As the children, well, you can put a, a kid could start working out in the field, helping out on the farm as early as six or seven. Once they can walk and talk, um, yeah, they can start putting in some hours and that's more hands helping you, you know, raise your goats, milk your goats in those areas, they milk goats and uh, making cheese and all that good stuff. Um, so yeah, it really helps out. So that, that, that's the reason that they have more kids. Uh, a combination of that and then again, so it's encouraged. Having more children means a higher survival rate because when it's a tribal society and you never know when the tribe next door is going to come knocking on your door to take your resources, the more people you have in your tribe could fight off that other tribe. Um, that's why they have so many kids in that situation. And then on top of that, they're torn in a war zone. That means that they have high child mortality rates. So if you do want to have a lot of kids, maybe you only wanted to have two kids. Well, unfortunately, parents, you know, sometimes they have, they, you know, they, they lose a lot of kids, so they have to work harder to keep them around. They know that a lot of the kids aren't going to survive. So in order to have a larger family, they, maybe they wanted four. If they can have eight, that means they know that some of the kids aren't going to make it. At least they know that that they're going to have a large family and someone is going to make it. And, um, and you know, they, they were looking at it in a, in a study by Burkina Faso. They found that 8.5% uh, of children will die before reaching their fifth birthday in some of these countries. And that this, this percentage is actually just in Haiti, right? And Haiti isn't necessarily a completely war-torn... Um, country right it's even worse when you start looking at the percentages in other areas like uh, Afghanistan the Middle East and and places uh, the sub-saharan desert in, in Africa and that kind of thing so yeah that's why they have more kids uh, you combine that with limited access to education and you know you look at also the idea of early marriage and gender expectations and limited access to contraception. The idea that contraception isn't even used because they're trying to look at making a bigger tribe. Um, there's no state, so it's and so if, even if they do have a state, the state isn't very strong, right? These a lot of these countries have been toppled over, and uh, dummy governments being put into place, and still trying to survive. Afghanistan, in particular, right, with all the stuff that happened. Um, throughout Desert Storm and all that stuff, like they put in they put in new leaders, but the new leaders aren't exactly it's not a strong state. That's why that's why ISIS and these terrorist organizations are able to kind of when 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 the Western world's militaries start to kind of evacuate or start to leave and try to see if these states can run on their own, um, they don't have enough manpower to fight off. And I said they're tribal societies. Like we still assume we always assume we, we look at quote-unquote terrorist organization like, for example, uh, ISIS, right, or the Taliban, and we forget that the Taliban and ISIS, although they have similar religious ideals, are two different tribes, going back to our tribes. This also talks about, I'm also mentioning how religion, right, religion is another, 
is another factor. And uh, a lot of these places with less education, well, they don't have much education. So what kind of education do they have access to? Their literacy rates are very low. Um, I think it was like somewhere in the 60s or 70 percentile, some of that. But they are. They're much lower. And so the only place they can learn how to read is, you guessed it, with no state and very little education, the religious institutions are the very few places they can go and become literate, learn how to read, which is a good function. But the problem is now you're getting indoctrinated with a religious ideology. And this turns into this crazy cycle that you see happening in that region of the world. And that's what's going on. That, that's, that's why they have more kids to survive. And with these tribal societies constantly, constantly fighting each other and weak states, having more kids helps your family survive in that kind of a harsh environment. Um, yeah, and that, that's, that was my answer. That's why uh, for us it's hard to understand because, again, we come from, from countries that we never had to really think about those kind of things. So I don't want to talk about uh, the concept of privilege. Because I know people get upset about that. So I'm just going to say that we're lucky. I'm lucky. You're lucky. If you're listening to this podcast, you're lucky. Unless for some reason you have access to this podcast in a place that I just mentioned. In which, thank you very much for tuning in. Um, I'm assuming I don't have that many listeners. But if I do, thank you very much for tuning in. That's my perspective on what's going on over there. All right. Um, Okay. Let's see what's next. All right, time for our final question. My final question isn't really a question. I, like I said, I make mistakes. I make a lot of mistakes, yo. And I guess I'll start this one with the question I asked myself. Hubris and why you shouldn't diagnose people on the fly. That's going to be the subtitle, I guess, of, of this next section of the podcast. I remember when I was studying psychology in my early 20s, in my one of my undergrad courses, and uh, Dr. Terrazas from California State University, San Marcos, a licensed uh, MFT, marriage family therapist, and counselor and psychologist, he would come in and teach classes um, out of the goodness of his heart, because I'm sure a university professor makes a lot less than an MFT does. And he would, he talked about one day, you know, we went over the whole, uh, the whole semester we went over different mental illnesses, and uh, we were talking about diagnosing, diagnosing. Not just diagnosing, but we were talking about, he kept talking about hubris, or this idea of you thinking you're superior just because you have a psychology degree. And where he was mostly talking about power dynamics. So one of the things he said in class was, no matter how much you think you know, if you ever think to yourself that you've studied psychology so long that you can't make mistakes. Be careful because hubris makes fools of us all. It was a really good quote. Another quote that uh, I want to throw out there was Dr. Morissette. Dr. Morissette was a professor for my, I'd like, it's not an undergrad, it's like an under undergrad. When I was working at, when I was in the community college at Palomar College 
in California, uh, also in the county of San Marcos. And he said, if you ever find yourself in a position where you can diagnose people really quickly, as within an hour of a, of a session, be careful because you probably misdiagnosed them. You'd think with all these great quotes, I would have learned my fucking lesson, but I didn't. And I guess this kind of goes to the idea, you know, I'll make it really clear. Yes, I have a master's in psychology. My master's in psychology is a master's of science. It's based on research. I specifically, after doing all my, my coursework, I made sure that I wasn't going to get a degree in, well, I was going to get a degree in psychology, but I wasn't going to get my license in psychology. I made that decision when I started my master's program. When they asked me, do you want to get a master's of science or do you want to get a master's of arts, which means I would be getting a counseling degree when I'm finished. And I realized that for two, two reasons. I said, well, in the future, I'm not sure. I'm an expat. I don't know if I'm going to come back to the United States and practice. And it's going to be really difficult to practice as a counselor in Japan. So I think there's more career opportunity in research. One. Two, I felt that I maybe not, I might not be qualified to be a counselor, a psychologist. And the reason I might not be qualified is because I lose my patience with people. And that would make me a really bad counselor. I recognize that. I recognize that if I was going to become a counselor, I was going to have to do some more work with myself, even if that opportunity was there. And at the end of the day, uh, I questioned whether or not I would make a good counselor. Now, now with that being said, uh, people find out. I have people find out. I tell people, right? I talk about how I have a master. I'm really proud of the idea. Why am I so proud of the idea that I have a master's in psychology? It was so hard to get, y'all. It was not an easy thing to do, writing a thesis. I've written two theses, three theses. I did two undergrad, two undergrad research projects to prepare myself for the master's thesis, two theses as an undergrad, and then one master's thesis on psycholinguistics to link it together for my jo job as an English teacher. And it was a lot of work. So yeah, and I'm not the kind of person that came. I'm the first person in my family to get a degree. I'm the first person in my family to get a a uh, uh, undergraduate degree. I'm the first person in my generation of my family to get a master's degree. Um, everyone before me, in my mom's side and my dad's side, yeah. In fact, from my mom's side and my dad's side, nobody got a degree. Yeah, high school diplomas, and my my mom didn't. My mom technically didn't get her high school diploma. She worked later. She I think recently she called. She's contacted me and said she was going back to get her GED, and hopefully she finished doing that. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then my dad was just a really successful businessman, but again, education wasn't a priority for him, and he didn't, yeah, he never got a, he never got a degree, he never got an undergraduate degree, and I think he got some, maybe some community college, he did get a high school diploma. Now, so yeah, that that's why I'm so proud, 
And that's why I always say I have a master's. I'm not trying to say I have a master's. Oh, look at me. I'm so much smarter than anybody else. I know uh, saying that is a hub hubris at its best. Hubris is uh, uh, the idea of being caught up in your own ego thinking you're the shit. Layman's terms of hubris. Um, so, yeah, I'm definitely not trying to say that. Because the second you say that you think you're smarter, faster, stronger than anyone else, someone smarter, faster, stronger will immediately point out where, you, where you're really at. I learned that in martial arts. Um... So yeah, why am I saying that? Well, because people still uh, contact me and ask me for advice. Friends, usually friends. I have a lot of friends that see me as like their personal counselor. Like, they see me as their personal counselor. I always tell them I am not your personal counselor. But and I am my, my disclaimer. I always say that disclaimer because people are here. You studied psychology. Hey, this is what I'm going through. And I totally understand why they're doing that. And I love the fact that they do that and that they trust me with this really confidential information that they should probably be sharing with a licensed therapist that's got a bunch of guidelines ethical guidelines that they have to follow i know the same ethical guidelines but i don't have to follow them because i don't have a license so there's really no repercussions for me if i make a mistake i think having all those safeguards helps the person the professionals I, the, yeah it helps the professionals who have licenses and that make more careful decisions because if they make a mistake they can lose their license and no longer have a income well, me, I can make a mistake and just be like, well, oh, sorry, I fucked up, my bad. And I have no real big repercussions from it. So that's why I always tell them whenever they ask me for advice. Now, at the same time, like on the flip side of that, I also understand that it's tough. It's tough to say, hey, I want, like a lot of, I think there's a lot of stigmatization of saying that you need counseling. A lot of people feel that they, makes you look crazy, right? No one wants to feel like they look crazy, they're not normal. And I, to those people, I want to say, dude, no one's normal. Honestly, enormously normal averages. Everybody has their problems. Some people hide them better than others. But anything I learned studying psychology is I still had. I have a lot. I have a gang load of problems: social anxiety, uh, depression. Uh, these are things that I've dealt with in, in my time. And uh, I've learned to get a handle on thanks to seeing a professional. Like, it wasn't like I'm this guru, yogi, yogi, martial arts master who meditated under a waterfall and suddenly found Zen meditation and mindfulness. These aren't things that I just came into my head while meditating. Like, this is stuff that I found. This is like chicken and the egg stuff. Like, I found mindfulness and meditation because I was studying psychology, because I was looking for help. Because I was looking into ways to help, not just to myself, but the people around me. And that's when I sought professional help. And at that time, I sought professional help because I had a high stress load. I was studying psychology. My father was dying. He was terminally ill with cancer. My mother was gone. Uh, I was in my mid-20s, uh, taking care of my brother, just got married. And um, when my... when when I was studying psychology and the professors, Professor Taras is one of them. He actually opened up his office hours and, and offered to talk to me to help me out with not just my psychological, but academic stuff. And then also like he recommended uh, counseling on campus. And I was constantly talking to counselors, constantly. In fact, it was the counselors that got me through counselors like, uh, like, like Larry Moyano and, um, yeah, like there's a lot of people that helped me. I didn't get my education. It wasn't just like, uh, I wasn't by myself in that. I had a whole support system 
of counselors, friends, and family that helped me finish my undergraduate degree and gave me the tools I needed to get my master's degree. And I needed professional help. Everybody can use some professional help, an outside perspective. I, to I totally recommend that every time to anyone who asks me to give them some advice. Um, and then I also tell them what I know, because I know, you know, because I personally know what they're going through. So I guess my, I see my personal mission or job when someone asks me for help to com to destigmatize the idea of seeking professional help. And, but in the middle of that, I make mistakes. Like people ask me about, people ask me about what I think the problem might be, and uh, sometimes I'm right on. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? It sounds like you have ABC disorder or XYZ um, personality disorder, but maybe. And I always tell them, but go ahead and second reference that. And uh, and they do, and they find out that they they, they that you know that my advice was on point. But sometimes I'm I'm way off, or sometimes I, I make mistakes in the history of a case file, and I did that recently to a friend of mine, and I feel horrible about it. And then uh, they asked me for help, I gave them some help, and then after I, I, I gave them a... I, I, I still feel that the diagnosis I gave was correct, however the approach was incorrect, and the history was incorrect. I made a I made a statement about the the client. I call them clients, patients. I made a about the person's history, psychosocial history. Psychosocial history is uh, the history of mental illness, and um, where I thought the person was diagnosed previously and they weren't, and uh, it led to a big drama scenario, and both parties found out, and now one of my friends probably hates me. So yeah, I make mistakes, and if you're listening to this, I'm really sorry. That's not, that was not my intention. I'm not perfect. I'm not trying to sabotage anyone. I'm not trying to come after anyone. Um, again, I don't. I don't see psychology as something scary. I know some people do. Some people feel that they carry their diagnosis with them. That being labeled as someone who's mentally ill is going to limit their chances in employment and that kind of thing. And what I want to say is that if you find yourself in a situation where you're going after a job and you're trying to get uh, work for whatever institution and and they say that a history of mental illness does not make you capable to do that job and you are hiding the fact that you have a history of mental illness. There's a reason they're saying that. And my advice to anyone listening who is working with mental illness and is trying to hide their mental illness for employment um, it's going to make it worse. Those demons in your closet that are just waiting to come out and consume you and everybody around you, those demons are going to come out at that job. Whether you want to admit it or not, if you want to hide that from everyone, you can. But once you get that job and those demons, and they're not, I'm not talking about real demons here, like, ooh, I know it's Halloween's, around the corner or whatever, Halloween just passed by the time I released this. I'm talking about those dark secrets, those dark inner parts of your mind and your subconscious that show you horrible things in your dreams because of the things you're working with. And I know because I have those problems. I've suffered, suffered from depression, night terrors. So I know what these things are. 
and I work with them. I also know there's certain jobs that I would not want to do because I don't want to have to rehash them, relive them, if you will. That's one of the reasons I decided I didn't want to go for a, you know, for the <clears throat> get licensed as a therapist because there was just some populations I wouldn't want to work with because it would bring up too much past trauma because of my own psychosocial history dealing with child abuse. So everybody has their baggage. Um, and if for some reason you're trying to go after just for that paycheck, you feel that you're going to hide that baggage, it's, gonna, it's like a tidal wave. It's like you're trying to stop a tsunami with some sandbags and the water is rising and rising. And going to that job is just going to make that water rise that much faster. And sooner or later, it will come after you. And if you don't watch out, it'll take out you and everyone else around you. Facing it, seeking professional help, that's the best thing you can do, not only for yourself, but for your loved ones as well. And if someone around you feels that you need to get professional help, they only, they only say that because they love you. Because most people don't give a fuck, right? Most people don't give a fuck about, oh, well, I shouldn't say that. For the most part, when you meet strangers, it depends on what kind of person they are and what kind of people you're surrounded by. But a lot of times, most of the time when you meet someone, they're trying to figure out what's in it for them. And there's, as you get older, the opportunities to make close, long-lasting relationships with people that actually care about you and are and and are your friend not for their own no not for their own interests but for your interests because they're actually rooting for you people in your corner people in your circle of friends those kind of people are harder and harder to find the older you get so when someone feels that you need professional help it's not because they're trying to sabotage you but it's because they feel that they they feel that you're losing yourself and they want to help you and that they don't have the tools to help you and they want you to find someone that can give you the tools to help you fight off those demons that you're trying to take care of that might be consuming you. So yeah, I made a mistake. I did. But I think everyone can learn from their mistakes. And I, I, I learned from my mistake. I definitely learned from that. And um, if you're listening, I apologize again. You know who you are. But um, I still don't change my original thought that everyone needs help sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. All right. And that wraps up these three questions. Like I said, that's the end of this episode of Social Jello with Angelo. I really appreciate you listening to the show. Um, I can't mention enough about how much I love doing the show. I've been doing it now for oh, two years or so. I do it because it's fun. I do it because I love it. I do it because I like it. And I do it because uh, it's like my own. It's it's nice to just kind of free range my thoughts like this and throw them out there. Brainstorm and helps me get my synapses firing. Hopefully what I say can help inspire you to do better. That's mostly what I want this show to be about. Is I hope you finish this show and you go out there and accomplish something. Something. Anything. Either way. Um, events. I don't have any events coming up. Uh, we're finishing up into November. 
and uh, I'm going to be going to China next month. Hopefully I can get a podcast before I go to China. I might do a podcast after I get back from China too, but that'll probably be December's episode. Uh, so yeah, uh, that's about it. I hope you all have a great month. Until I see you next time, catch you later. Aloha and mahalo. Peace. Fucking